One evening in 1925, a woman dressed in the somber black clothes of a widow knocks on the door of an imposing red brick house in Chicago. The door is opened by a male servant in a dark suit. The woman dabs away the tears from her cheeks with a handkerchief and gives her name as Mrs. Rosalind Richards, here to see Herman E. Parker, self-proclaimed pastor of the Spiritualist Church. Parker is a renowned medium. In other words, someone who claims to be able to communicate with the spirits of the dead. Mrs. Richards is led down a dimly lit hallway. Gaslights flicker, turned down to the lowest setting. The servant takes her to a room at the back of the house. With its chintz fabrics, mahogany furniture, and drooping half-drawn drapes, the room has a gloomy, old-fashioned feel. The air is dry and dusty, the temperature chilly as if it doesn't often see the sun. The objects around the edges are little more than outlines, vague shapes looming in the darkness. The sense of something existing just beyond her vision grows strong. The mysterious servant gestures for Mrs. Richards to sit down at an oval table. The faint glimmer of the dying day is reflected in its highly polished surface. The servant withdraws, and Mrs. Richards is left to her own thoughts. As she told Mr. Parker in a letter, her main reason for consulting him is for solace. She loved her deceased husband dearly and would give anything to hear from him just one last time. Mr. Parker wrote back and informed her that for $25, he is willing to oblige. Another door opens, and Parker himself enters. In the gloom, it's difficult to make out his features clearly or to read his expression. Like his servant, he too is dressed in a dark suit. Parker sits down opposite Mrs. Richards. First things first, does she have the money? She hands over the cash, which he holds up to the meager light to examine. It seems his second sight does not extend to checking banknotes. He eventually satisfies himself that she's not trying to cheat him and pockets the money. Then he gets down to business. Time is money, even in the afterlife. The medium heaves a deep sigh his shoulders shuddering violently as if an icy chill has passed through him or as if something has taken possession of his body. The shaking stops and Parker closes his eyes. I am in touch with a man, he says. Yes, it is your husband. Parker goes on to tell her that her husband is very happy in the spirit world, though he misses her. He's about to wind up the seance when Mrs. Richard blurts out that she has recently come into possession of $3,000 and would like her husband's advice on what to do with it. All of a sudden, the spirits seem to take possession of Parker again. 
He tells Mrs. Richards that her husband is now standing at her right shoulder. He tells her to reach out her arm so that she can touch her husband. Slowly, Mrs. Richards lifts her right hand through the empty air. She feels, well, she has to be honest, nothing. But she keeps her negative thoughts to herself and waits to see what Pastor Parker will do next. Parker tells her that the best way to communicate with her husband is through spirit writing, especially when precise instructions are required. Conveniently, Parker has a pad and pencil on the table in front of him. He takes up the pencil and holds it over the paper. Parker's eyes are open again, but his head is tilted backwards. His eyes roll upwards until only the whites are showing. The pencil begins to move. Slowly it writes the letter W, followed by I, L, C, O, X, gradually spelling out the words, Wilcox Transportation Company. The spirit-guided hand continues to write. The message from Mr. Richards couldn't be clearer. Invest $1,000, he tells his widow. Then, speaking through Parker, her husband's spirit tells her that if she does this, she will see a return of $5,000 in just two years. Pastor Herman Parker comes out of his trance. The seance is at an end. Overcome with emotion, his client weeps tears of gratitude. But as Mrs. Richards steps outside into the gathering dusk, a change seems to come over her. The years fall from her. She stands a little straighter and walks with a sudden bounce in her step. She's no longer the archetypal, grieving widow, bent over by sadness and worry. She's a fit, energetic young woman in her early thirties. The flicker of a wry smile shows on her lips. You see, the woman who has just consulted psychic medium Herman E. Parker is not in fact the widow Rosalind Richards. Her real name is Rose Mackenberg. Rose is a master of disguises and a consummate method actor. But more importantly, she's a private detective. She's now on her way to her hotel, where she'll place a long-distance call to her boss, the world-famous escapologist and illusionist Harry Houdini. Houdini is waging a campaign against fake mediums, and Rose Mackenberg is one of his star investigators. She's got a lot to report, and it's time for the two of them to discuss their next move in the war on unscrupulous fraudsters like Herman E. Parker. My name is Mark Dodson, and welcome to Detectives Don't Sleep. Each week we'll shadow the world's most remarkable sleuths, real detectives who worked extraordinary cases. In this special Halloween episode, we venture into the twilight world of spirits and mediums in the company 
of fearless psychic fraud investigator Rose Mackenberg. In partnership with the great Houdini, Rose worked tirelessly to expose fake mediums and their heartless scams. So, dim the lights and join hands around the table as we summon up the spirits of the past to help us tell our story. There will even be a cameo appearance from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, creator of the greatest detective in fiction. From Noiser, this is Houdini's spirit detective, and this is Detectives Don't Sleep. Back at her hotel, Rose calls Houdini. She tells him that the sting went perfectly. Parker fell for their story hook, line, and sinker. Because, yes, of course, there's no dead husband. Rose isn't even married, and she doesn't need investment advice from a dead man. She doesn't feel guilty about lying to Parker. After all, Everything he does is based on lies. He's not a medium. He's a con man, using his bogus spiritualism to dupe unwitting victims. Besides, she can't help thinking that if he was a genuine medium, the spirits would have warned him who she really was. It's strange. She must have been to hundreds of seances, always pretending to be someone she isn't, and not once has a single spirit raised the alarm. The next day, Rose does some digging. She contacts the Investors Protective Bureau, or IPB for short, to see if they have anything on Wilcox Transportation. The company exists, at least in name, it lists two directors, John Wilcox and, wait for it, Herman E. Parker. Yeah, you probably didn't need to be psychic to see that one coming. The Wilcox Transportation Company is basically a scam set up to extort money. The victims are usually so embarrassed by their gullibility that they never make a complaint. I mean, who wants to admit to being defrauded by ghosts? But if Rose is willing to testify, the IPB rep is confident that they'll be able to nail the two con men. She agrees without hesitation. Thanks to Rose's investigation, the case goes to court. Parker's defense attorney tries to argue that nobody called Rose Mackenberg ever visited his client for a spiritual consultation. Strictly speaking, that's true, as she visited Parker under the pseudonym Ed Rosalind Richards. But she's able to prove that Rose Mackenberg and Mrs. Richards are the same person by producing the letters from Parker arranging the appointment. Parker and Wilcox are found guilty with Parker receiving a fine and his accomplice a suspended sentence. Unfortunately, Parker is still free to practice as a medium, but at least the case is reported in the Chicago papers, which Rose hopes will deter future clients 
from knocking on his door. So why are Rose and Houdini so determined to expose fraudulent practitioners of spiritualism? To answer that question, let's start by taking a look at the rise of the spiritualist movement. Spiritualism is the belief that the souls of the departed survive death and that it's possible for them to communicate with the living. It arose as a belief system in the first half of the 19th century. Right from the beginning, there were charlatans willing to exploit the movement for their own gain. The first fake mediums in history are the Fox sisters, Kate and Margareta from Hydesville, New York. As young girls in the 1840s, they played tricks on their terrified mother, who became convinced that the house they lived in was haunted. The ghosts communicated with the Fox sisters through strange knocking sounds. Many years later, the sisters admitted that they made these noises by clicking their toe and finger joints. Kate and Margareta became professional mediums, managed, some might say exploited, by their older sister, Leah. They made a good living from the dead, conducting hundreds of seances for paying audiences. But in 1888, growing tired of their grueling touring regime, they came clean, revealing that their whole act was a fake. Despite the sisters' confessions, many continued to believe their psychic powers were genuine. Spiritualism flourished at the beginning of the 20th century in response to two catastrophic events, the First World War and the Spanish influenza pandemic. In total, around 20 million people died in the Great War, and just as soon as the conflict ended, the world was shaken by a second wave of death. The Spanish influenza pandemic lasted from 1918 to 1920. It's estimated that it claimed as many as 50 million lives worldwide. Families all over the world grieved the cruel and sudden loss of sons, daughters, brothers, and sisters. They desperately longed for something to fill the void and turned to spiritualism for answers. It offered a deeply consoling creed. Not only were their loved ones happy in the spirit world, they could even talk to them. Spirit seances became all the rage, frequented by celebrities, society figures, and even men of science. One of the most influential supporters of the spiritualist movement was the prominent British physicist Sir Oliver Lodge. Lodge's scientific expertise was in the field of radio waves, an invisible means of communication born in the ether. It opened the door for his belief in communicating with spirits. Another leading advocate was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, ironically, the creator of one of the most rational characters in fiction, Sherlock Holmes. Both men lost sons in the First World War and were convinced that spiritualism 
offered proof of life beyond death. As well as sincere believers like Lodge and Conan Doyle, spiritualism attracted its fair share of crooks. Not surprisingly, this was big business. One investigator estimates that by 1932, around 30 million victims were paying out $125 million per year to fake spiritualists. But maybe it doesn't matter if a medium isn't genuine, so long as the client gets something out of it. Hope, consolation, a kind of catharsis that allows them to move on. Who's it hurting, really? People want to believe. Why not let them? Rose Mackenberg doesn't buy this argument, and neither does Houdini. As far as they're concerned, these fraudsters are ruthless criminals feeding off the emotional pain and vulnerability of others, and they need to be stopped. Houdini claimed many times that he approached spiritualism with an open mind and in fact sincerely wanted to believe, especially after the death of his beloved mother in 1913. But to believe, he needed to be convinced, and nothing he saw ever persuaded him that these psychic phenomena were genuine. Looking back at his career, it's no wonder he was skeptical. You see, Houdini started out selling magic tricks by mail order, advertising such wonders as how to read folded papers in darkened rooms, 50 cents, Spirit Lock, complete, $2. Secret, 50 cents. How to materialize spirit forms. Forms seemingly rise out of solid floor. Secret, $1. Then, in the 1890s, he actually worked a stint as a fake medium himself. He got the gig with a traveling medicine show called the California Concert Company. The handbill announces that Houdini the Great will give Sunday night a spiritual seance in the open light. It promises a night of mystery. The tricks that he had once sold to would-be mediums, he now used to deceive his audience. He got them all from a book, Revelations of a Spirit Medium, by Harry Price and Eric J. Dingwall. It's pretty much a manual for spiritual fraudsters. It wasn't long before the young Houdini suffered a crisis of conscience. As the son of a rabbi, he struggled to reconcile this deliberate deception with the sense of right and wrong that was instilled in him by his parents. He gradually changed his act into the escapology routine that he will become famous for. As an escapologist, he's eminently qualified for the role of paranormal investigator. Many mediums are tied up, or, like the famous Davenport brothers, enclosed in mysterious wooden cabinets to ensure that they don't cheat. No one knows better than Houdini how to slip out of such confines. It's Escapology 101. And so, Houdini becomes a campaigner against fake mediums, carrying out lecture tours and incorporating sensational exposés into his act. 
He even joins forces with the Scientific American magazine, rigorously putting hundreds of psychics to the test, which in Houdini's opinion, they all fail. Houdini's campaign coincides with a decline in the popularity of his escapology act. He finds himself slipping down the bill. At the same time, he sees spiritualism grow in popularity. He decides to hitch his wagon to the rising trend, this time not as a fake practitioner, but as a fierce opponent. Audiences flock to see him perform mysterious psychic feats that defy explanation. But he makes it clear that he achieves his amazing stunts by natural methods, by honest trickery, in other words. It's not his fault if audiences refuse to believe him. So amazing were Houdini's illusions that many found it easier to believe he had genuine supernatural powers. For instance, the ability to dematerialize. In their eyes, he literally was a man who could walk through walls. One of those who believed this was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote to Houdini in 1920. Yes, you have driven me to the occult. My reason tells me that you have this wonderful power, for there is no alternative. For many years, Houdini kept up a friendship with Conan Doyle. Their friendship is all the more remarkable, because both men are on opposite sides of the spiritualism debate. Houdini is an arch-skeptic, Conan Doyle an avid believer. On June 18, 1922, Conan Doyle makes one final attempt to convince his friend of the reality of spirit communication. While on vacation in Atlantic City, he invites Houdini to a seance conducted by his wife, Lady Conan Doyle, who claims to have the gift of channeling spirits through automatic writing. The famous author tells his friend that his wife is going to attempt to make contact with Houdini's mother. Houdini agrees to take part. After all, there's nothing he wants more than to hear from the mother he loved so much. In a darkened room, Lady Conan Doyle falls into a trance. She produces several pages of words supposedly written by Houdini's mother. However, Houdini is far from convinced. In fact, he's furious. At the top of every page, the spirit of Houdini's mother has apparently drawn a crucifix. Being Jewish and the wife of a rabbi, this was not something Houdini's mother would be likely to do. The notes from beyond are also written in fluent, chatty English. Houdini's mother's native tongue was Hungarian. So wouldn't that be the language she'd choose to communicate in? Especially as she couldn't actually speak English, despite living in America for many years. Conan Doyle explains the slip-up by saying that the spirits can learn skills they didn't have in life. But Houdini's not buying it. 
for one very good reason. June the 18th, the date of the seance, is also his mother's birthday. A hugely significant day. He feels sure that if this was really his mother's spirit speaking through Lady Conan Doyle, she would have made some reference to the date. Houdini is polite. He has no doubt that the Conan Doyles are sincere, just mistaken. But the two men's differences over spiritualism will eventually lead to a permanent rift. They take to attacking each other in the pages of various newspapers. Because of his loyalty to Arthur Conan Doyle, Houdini does not expose Lady Conan Doyle as a fraud. The way he sees it, she was deceiving herself more than anyone else. And besides, she hadn't asked for any money for the seance. He's not so lenient when it comes to the fraudsters he considers to be the real villains. He's relentless in his war against them, rooting them out and unmasking them with the help of investigators like Rose Mackenberg. The two of them first meet in 1924, when Rose is working as a private detective. She's investigating a case in which a medium is channeling spirits to trick a wealthy banker out of his money. Rose wants to get the great illusionist's opinion on what's really going on. Houdini explains the tricks used by fake mediums and tells her what to look out for. He's impressed with her resourcefulness and intellect, not to mention her chutzpah. She's prepared to don a disguise to catch the crooked medium red-handed. Fast forward to 1925. Houdini launches his campaign against fraudulent mediums. He remembers the quick-witted female detective and recruits her to the cause. Specifically, he wants her to lead his secret service, a team of undercover investigators who will pose as bereaved relatives seeking the services of mediums. Mediums that Houdini will later expose as fake in his stage show. Here's how they work their sting. The investigators arrive in a town where Houdini is due to perform a few weeks later. They then research the local spiritualism scene, find out who the most prominent mediums are, and arrange consultations with them. Typically, Rose will make her appointment under a false name, wearing one of her many disguises. She's so thorough, she'll even buy the clothes for the disguise at a local store to make sure she fits in with what women in the area are wearing. She has a range of personas that she likes to adopt, including the rustic school teacher, the small town matron, the credulous servant girl, and the semi-invalid. After Hermony e. Parker's attorney argued in court that Rose had never set foot inside the client's house, Rose introduces a clever modification to their tactics. When consulting a medium, she always asks to use the bathroom. While there, leaves a secret mark in chalk 
either behind the mirror or under the bathtub. That way, she can prove that one of Houdini's psychic investigators has paid a visit. After the consultation, she reports back to Houdini, who will then expose the medium as a fraud in his show. It's always a dramatic moment, especially if the medium is in the audience. And for some reason, they usually find it hard to stay away. One such show takes place at B.F. Keith's Theater in Indianapolis in 1925. For the first half of the performance, Houdini runs through the greatest hits of his act with his wife Bess as his glamorous assistant. The disappearing lady is a cornerstone of every magician's routine. But Houdini being Houdini, he takes it a step further. Ever since 1918, he's been performing the disappearing elephant. Of course, Houdini is most famous for being an escapologist, and the audience would be disappointed if he didn't demonstrate at least one of his spectacular escape stunts. Tonight, he will break free from the Chinese water torture cell. His feet are locked securely in wooden stocks as he's lowered headfirst into a glass-fronted tank of water. The curtains are drawn across the front of the tank. The audience holds its breath. So does Houdini. The time drags on. Spectators are getting nervous. There's no way he can stay underwater much longer. Has the great Harry Houdini finally met his end? But then, suddenly, the tank shakes slightly and Houdini emerges from the top, drenched but alive. The crowd goes wild. The second half of Houdini's act is devoted to exposing the tricks of fake mediums. He calls for volunteers and invites them to sit around a table for a seance. The lights are turned down. Every single member of the audience feels the hairs on the back of their necks stand up. They sense a presence with them, there in the darkness. And Houdini hasn't done a thing yet. The greatest weapon in the fake medium's arsenal is people's own imagination. Then it starts. The audience hears a ghostly breathing. The spirit of a child makes its presence known. The audience sees ectoplasm appear out of Houdini's mouth and dance through the air. One of the volunteers cries out at the sound of spirit voices whispering in their ear. Another screams as they feel an invisible hand on their shoulder. The lights come on and Houdini explains how it's all done. The ghostly breathing is just one of his accomplices working an accordion. Another accomplice is a young child hidden behind a panel. The ectoplasm was cheesecloth soaked in luminous paint held up by fishing wire. The ghostly whispers, a collapsible speaking trumpet, allowed him to project his voice. The hand on the shoulder, another accomplice, dressed from head to toe in black, with a black mask covering their face. 
Houdini explains other tricks of the fake medium trade, too. How a medium breaks the circle of hands without those seated on either side knowing. And how to do the same thing with your feet under the table. How to levitate tables and cause spirit writing to appear on slates. He also explains how mediums manage to know so much about the people who consult them. It's just a matter of doing your homework, reading the obituaries, and even bribing local businesses such as hairdressers and restaurants to pass on gossip. And if a medium ever gets anything wrong, they can just say that the spirits are being mischievous. Houdini insists that it's all produced by natural means, by stage magic and trickery. It's all flim-flam, says the greatest flim-flam man of them all. Then he calls Rose Mackenberg out onto the stage. At the sight of the slim, elegantly dressed woman, one member of the audience shifts uncomfortably in his seat. This is the Reverend Charles Gonzalez, who describes himself as one of America's leaders in spiritualism. Gonzalez can't be sure, but he thinks he's seen this woman before. The next thing Gonzalez knows, Houdini has the house lights turned up and is scanning the audience. He points to Gonzalez and asks him to stand up. Gonzalez rises nervously to his feet. Then Houdini invites Rose to tell the ladies and gentlemen about her recent experience at Gonzalez's salon. And as soon as Gonzalez hears her voice, he knows where he's seen her before. She came to see him for a consultation, only she didn't quite look like this, and she wasn't called Rose Mackenberg. Suddenly, Gonzalez knows he's in big trouble. Rose tells the story of how she went to see Gonzalez pretending to be a bereaved mother who had recently lost her baby. She tearfully asks him to check up on her child in the spirit world. Gonzalez agreed. He poured some water in a bowl and told Rose that she would be able to see her baby if she peered into it. However, he also told her that it would work better if she removed all her clothes. She declined and the session ended without a sighting of the baby's spirit. The audience jeers, protesting his innocence. Gonzalez runs from the auditorium, jostled and pushed on his way out. Another city, another dubious medium, exposed as a fake. In February 1926, Houdini and Rose's campaign reaches Capitol Hill. Congress is considering a bill to outlaw fortune-telling which would include mediums both fake and genuine, if the latter exists. The House committee room is packed with interested spectators. Houdini is there, called as a witness to give his expert testimony. On the other side of the argument, there's an army of professional mediums whose livelihoods are threatened 
by the proposed bill. They are angry, and they see Houdini as the enemy. As you would expect from a showman, Houdini's testimony is highly dramatic. He writes a secret message on a piece of paper, screws it into a ball, then throws it onto the floor of the committee room, challenging the assembled mediums and psychics to use their powers to tell him what's written there. Not surprisingly, there are no volunteers. Next, Houdini demonstrates the various tricks used by fake mediums. He whispers into a trumpet to create spirit voices and causes writing to magically appear on slates. It's a pretty good advertisement for his stage show. Rose is also called to give evidence. In its own way, her testimony is even more explosive. Rose reveals that she's been in Washington for a few days now. She's used the time to visit a couple of local mediums. One is a spiritualist by the name of Mrs. Jane Coates. According to Rose, Mrs. Coates was pretty indiscreet. She told Rose about table tipping sessions in the White House, implying that President Coolidge and his family had taken part. Rose also names four senators that Mrs. Coates says consulted her. Now, it just so happens that Mrs. Coates herself is there in the committee room. She's been listening to every word Rose is saying, and she's not a happy medium. After all, it's going to hurt her business if people think she can't be trusted not to gossip about her VIP clients. She leaps to her feet, trying to drown Rose out. Her supporters join in with a chorus of heckling. Pretty soon, all hell breaks out. Several local spiritualists storm the committee table, yelling angrily in protest. One of them tries to attack Houdini and has to be physically restrained. Rose is escorted from the room for her own safety. Mrs. Coates' supporters follow her out into the corridor and continue yelling abuse at her. When the New York Times reports the incident, they describe the scene as close to a free-for-all fistfight. The angry psychics win in the end, and the bill is dropped. Sadly, eight months later, Houdini's campaign against fake mediums comes to a premature and tragic end. It's Halloween, 1926. Houdini lies on a Detroit hospital bed, barely able to move. He's suffering from a gangrenous appendix and advanced peritonitis. His illness started after he was punched repeatedly in the stomach in Montreal by a young boxer called Jocelyn Gordon Whitehead. The incident took place in Houdini's dressing room after Whitehead had asked if it was true that Houdini could withstand powerful blows to his abdomen. Houdini confirmed the claim, but Whitehead put it to the test before Houdini was able to tense his stomach muscles. Houdini's appendix was probably infected already, but the hammer blow punches can't have helped. This is in the days before antibiotics. 
Houdini's infection means certain death. Surgeons drain his abdomen, but it's not enough. A little after one o'clock, on October 31st, he tells his brother he's tired of fighting and closes his eyes for the last time. He was just 52 years old. Before his death, Houdini agreed with his wife, Bess, that if at all possible, he would find a way to get a coded message to her from beyond the grave. Each year, Bess holds a seance on Halloween night in the hopes of hearing from her husband's spirit. Others continue the tradition to this very day. So far, there's been no word from the spirit of Houdini. After the death of her friend and mentor, Rose Mackenberg continues unmasking fraudulent mediums for another two decades. She attends thousands of seances, and not once is she convinced that any of it is genuine. Rose frequently appears as an expert witness in legal cases involving alleged spirit intervention. She becomes the media's go-to woman for the paranormal. Throughout it all, she maintains a sharp sense of humor. In an interview with the St. Louis Post-Dispatch in 1937, she says, I never married, but I've received messages from a thousand husbands and twice as many children in the world to come. Invariably, they told me they were happy where they were which was not entirely flattering to me. Living alone in a New York apartment, she likes to keep the lights on because she says she spent too much time in darkened rooms. Like Houdini, Rose Mackenberg always claimed to have an open mind about the afterlife. She will finally discover the truth on April the 10th, 1968 when she dies at the age of 72. Happy Halloween. Hey listeners, next week we have a special treat lined up for you. An episode from our sister show, Short History Of, on the famous detective mystery writer, Agatha Christie hosted by John Hopkins, who you'll remember from Scotland Yard Confidential. Agatha Christie is the best-selling novelist of all time. Her books have sold over 2 billion copies and been translated into 103 languages. Christie's life spanned the golden age of mystery writing, where the most famous characters, Miss Marple and Hercule Poirot, define the whodunit genre of detective fiction. Across 66 novels, 14 short story collections, and 20 stage plays, Agatha Christie depicted the evil lurking in the hearts of ordinary people. But how was this privileged girl from a well-to-do English family able to write so shrewdly about poisons, psychopaths, and the dark side of life? Why did a sheltered young woman become an expert in murder? And what happened after her disappearance in 1926? A real-life mystery that saw the whole country turn amateur detective to try to find her. Find out next week.